This episode of Energy Sense is brought to you by IHS Markets Financial and Capital Markets Energy Advisory Group. Our team of experts provides the investment community with actionable insight and integrated thought leadership that identify the trends and trend makers of global energy markets. Solutions cover the full energy and natural resources sector, from traditional fossil fuels to emerging clean tech ideas and supply chains, and are available via recurring reports, webinars, robust data sets, and personal engagements with experts. All right, welcome back to Energy Sense, an S&P Global podcast, discovering and discussing all topics that sit on the intersection of energy and finance. This is your host, Hill Baden, and I am here today with Chris Sheehan, one of the lead experts of our transactions, M&A transactions research uh, here at S&P. Uh, Chris, how are you? Great, Hill. Thanks for having me today. Yeah, gladly. And we've been uh, exchanging emails and, and other forms of conversation trying to plan this for, for a few weeks now. Um, I should also let people know uh, in advance, one, that, that they can reach out to us at energysense at ihsmarket.com for more information on anything we discussed today. And two, that what sparked this podcast was your participation and leadership in what we call GUMAR, which is the Global Upstream M&A Review event. And this has been an event that, that we've been doing now for, what, more, more than 15 or so years, Chris? Yeah, about 18 years. About 18 years. And, and so this is the, uh, I think, the third time that, that we've done it entirely virtual as the pandemic has changed some of our event behaviors. And we are making that that full event available to to listeners uh, via webcast. Um, there's a link in, in the liner notes of this podcast for for people to to go into a little bit more detail on what Chris is going to talk to uh, talk to us about today. So w- without kind of further introduction, why, why don't we dive into it, Chris? The paper that that you published in support of this review begins with a key implication that accelerated energy transition pressures toward decarbonization are spurring upstream divestiture strategies to support a buyer's market for upstream assets, which is you know kind of a big shift. What are some of the other things that, that are the big takeaways from, from this year's M&A review? Yeah, well, I think we have to kind of address right up front the kind of elephant in the room. And you know, has Russia's invasion of Ukraine changed the debate surrounding the energy transition and what impact you know will that have on the upstream M&A market? And you know, in our webinars that uh, we presented to our clients, that topic, you know, was on the forefront of clients' minds. And we think that Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the resultant spike in crude prices have really accelerated the debate of balancing energy security on one side mm-hmm. with the pace of decarbonization. And, you know, we think rather than an either or approach, we expect there'll be a kind of all of the above approach. We think, you know, energy companies absolutely will continue to target reducing their carbon intensity. Uh, they're going to do that through investing directly in the low-carbon M&A sectors, and we've seen that over the last couple of years. And on the flip side, you know, looking to divest their higher-cost, higher-carbon upstream assets as a pivot in the energy transition, and that's creating the buyer's market because there's a lot of upstream assets on the marketplace, a lot of companies, you know, focusing on their shift to low-carbon. So how does that impact, you know, the companies that are firmly committed to upstream or are doubling down? On upstream, and those are a lot of you know both publicly traded independents, private companies, as well financial investors. So all those companies are you know still seeking to meet substantial market demand for fossil fuels, and a lot of that will come through the M&A market securing, high grading, and of course maintaining their core upstream holdings that are certainly highly profitable in current market conditions. 
So 21, uh, I think what was a return closer to, to normalcy in terms of deal flow and activity, at least relative to, to the prior year. But but I, am I correct that, that we're not back to what one would call a, a normal rate of, of upstream M&A activity? That's exactly correct. 2021 was a bounce from the bottom. So okay. we had a 20 year bottoming out in the kind of full pandemic year of 2020 in terms of upstream M&A deal flow deal count, deal activity. And we did have a good, you know, decent recovery in 2021. But as I said, it was a bounce from the bottom. And it was still far below, you know, historic norms in terms of deal flow. Now, I think it's important to point out that, you know, about a decade or so ago, the period of 2010 to 2014 was the most robust period in terms of upstream M&A deal flow in history. Mm -hmm. We are not going to return to that market, those days are gone. That was an era when both crude prices certainly were relatively strong. The outlook on a forward curve basis from crude prices on the sustainability of higher crude prices was fairly solid. And also importantly, investors were rewarding EMP companies that were growing through acquisitions. And it was all about volume growth. Mm -hmm. That was what management was being rewarded on. That's what the share price of EMPs were being rewarded by investors. So a lot of that growth was happening through acquisitions. It was mostly all debt-fueled acquisitions. Money was flowing very readily in the capital markets to EMPs to go out and outspend cash flow and, and acquire uh, for volume growth. And the big shift has been, in recent years, shifting from growth to returns. So looking to, for returns on capital returning funds to shareholders mm -hmm. in terms of dividends and share buybacks. So it's a very different investor-driven business model in the marketplace right now. So, so that 20... companies aren't looking to grow through acquisitions, and that's not what's being rewarded. Well, and that 2010 period was also the, the um, really the heyday for North America tidal oil, where, where there was a lot of growth from Undrilled acreage in you know places like the Eagleford and the Permian and, and, and elsewhere. Do you expect North America um, that that even if there there's a slowdown in, in activity, will, will North America continue to be um, one of the bright spots for global M and A uh, in the upstream sector, or should we see should we look to other regions to to kind of lead this next leg? I think North America will continue to be very critical market for upstream M and A. You mentioned the kind of tidal revolution, shale gas revolution mm -hmm. as well. And a lot of those early years that you mentioned, acquisitions of acreage, of undrilled positions, as, as you mentioned, and all that shifted to you know, corporate consolidation now among the EMPs in the plane because the North American shale plays and unconventional resource plays are very fragmented, very crowded in terms of the number of companies. Mm -hmm both public and private, and we've seen ongoing consolidation in those plays. The companies in obviously the strongest financial positions are leading those plays, obviously the ones on a technical basis who've been the best performers, and we expect that trend to continue. We mentioned before, the kind of, as you put it, the heyday, and I think that's a good way of putting it in terms of upstream M&A deal flow, was driven by a lot of kind of small to mid-size companies who are doing a lot of deals especially publicly traded companies. And because of the downturns in the uh, cycles in the industry, we saw a lot of bankruptcies and restructurings. A lot of those companies are no longer in the marketplace and no longer you know, doing deals. But there still are a lot of certainly smaller private companies as well 
mid-sized to large, you know, independents in these very crowded, unconventional resource plays in North America. So there's going to be continued consolidation on the on the corporate side. There's a lot of private equity-backed companies, and we're in a period of the cycle now with strong commodity prices, where P firms are in a much better position to try to monetize their long-standing holdings of their portfolio companies through the corporate upstream M&A market. There will not be a huge amount of asset deal activity as much in these unconventional resource plays in North America. Again, it's going to be dominated by corporate consolidation. But it is a very critical you know, part. And as far as the overall volume of the M&A marketplace, has considerable market share. So that was that you, you actually jumped my my next question. That the and I know we haven't exchanged questions in advance, but but the, do we expect to see more assets or corporate? And so at least in North America, it sounds like corporate consolidation will be the play, much more so than than any one off asset sales. Yes, I believe so. There's certainly real companies are looking to high grade their portfolios through, you know, asset sales. Uh, might be kind of looking to shift their portfolios in terms of core non core. And going to you know look to divest you know some of those properties for sure. The question mm-hmm. is who's going to be the buyers of those of those properties if if they're not material enough to move the needle to a company who's looking for you know scale and size and cost efficiencies. It's difficult in a lot of those cases to find buyers and certainly to find them at the price that the sellers are asking for. You know one of the results of this increase in crude prices. And obviously, there's been a spike in crude prices since Russia's invasion mm-hmm. of Ukraine. But what's interesting is, while March certainly was one of the lowest months in terms of upstream M&A deal count that we've seen in the last couple of years, prior to Russia's invasion of Ukraine, deal flow was already dropping in the upstream M&A market globally. North America, obviously, a big part of that. Deal flow was already dropping in January and February. So we saw deal flow at a post-pandemic high in the fourth quarter of 2021. And then we saw a very sharp drop, both in January and February, and certainly in March. But some of that, again, predated Russia's invasion of Ukraine. So why is that? You you had already increasing crude prices fairly rapidly at the beginning of this year in the first couple of months. And that started to widen the gap between buyers and sellers. And what I mean by that is, in those type of commodity price environments where we had rising crude prices, but we had a continued backwardation in the forward curve prices, mm-hmm. so forward prices much lower than current market prices, the sellers were looking to monetize their assets really at the valuations of the current commodity price markets. The buyers are being much more cautious. They've seen the volatility we've had, extreme volatility in commodity prices the last couple of years. And their their bids are at much discounted values, obviously more in line with either the forward price curve or taking into account that volatility. So there's a gap between buyer and seller price expectations. And when that happens, deals don't get done. Sure. So, you know, the question is, what can help close that gap? And what are some things that that, that can? I mean, I, w- I would think another at least piece of the thought process that we, we, we re- released a note to clients yesterday um, with the title has some of the effect of, you know, a tidal wave of cash flows coming coming to the the upstream upstream sector. Is access to internally funded capital as opposed to external funding? Um, is there patience there that is perhaps slowing down some activity? I, I think the biggest thing that's again restraining activity is the mantra by you know these EMP companies of financial discipline. Mm-hmm. 
And those boardroom mantras of decarbonization, financial discipline and capital efficiencies are what these companies are focused on and returning funds, as I mentioned earlier, to shareholders in terms of dividends and share buybacks. So that's where they're going to be plowing their excess cash flow into. It certainly, though, does give them the ability to take a look at M&A as a potential accelerant to decarbonize and high grade their portfolios. So they have, they'll have cash to play what they didn't in mm -hmm. recent years. So again, I think the primary focus will be on returning funds to shareholders, but because it is still relatively difficult to access capital through the capital markets, that having that cash on hand gives you the ability to it. And certainly we're gonna have a higher cost of capital than we have had with the rising interest rates we're seeing. And really the big hurdle or the big decision is, does it make more sense for me to buy more of myself than this other operator that, that, I, that I would have to see that that other operator gives me um, at least the same quality that I have in buying my own shares? Certainly. I mean, that's certainly part of the debate. It's obviously very company specific. Uh, the company's intrinsic valuation, obviously, versus its historic norms in terms of the multiples and the in the stock market and looking at your internal valuation, um, you know, what the ability, obviously, of making an acquisition, obviously, of a, of, of a peer or a rival who's well positioned, mm -hmm. you know, certainly in, in a core play, that's the same as yours, is it gives you that ability for scale and size and capital efficiency. And obviously, you need to replace your reserves sure. and your resources and your production. So if the companies, obviously, we're seeing much lower and almost historically low expiration spending by companies. So how do you replace your reserve resources in production? Again, M&A offers that more certainty to it, obviously, on a short-term basis of doing it through the M&A market versus expiration a much longer sure. cycle. And we're not just talking about North America. Obviously, we're talking international as well. And, um, you know, the question is the cost, the cost of an M&A versus finding and development costs, right? They're pretty competitive right, right now. But one thing for sure is that the cost, deal price per BOE of reserves or per flowing reduction uh, is at a pretty attractive level versus historic highs on the M&A market. So I talked about the 2010 to 14 period, very expensive in terms of M&A prices for companies to make acquisitions. At that point, they weren't so much focused on it because it was they're readily borrowing and making debt-fueled acquisitions. And again, we're being rewarded by investors just for growth for growth sake. Right. But certainly the M&A prices were much more expensive then than they are now. So relatively, if you're looking to make an acquisition on a relative historic basis, it's attractive. And one of the big deals, if not the biggest deal last year, was uh, I think it was Woodside that, that bought BHP's um, EE&P operations. Is that right? That's correct. They bought their global upstream business. And th does that feel repeatable to, to you in the sense that BHP, uh, I think, was, was effectively getting out of oil and gas? And so there was quality assets available for an operator who wanted to commit to oil and gas or further commit to oil and gas. Do you see more of those types of transactions uh, in play for people? I think over time, no, those, some of those are very much a one-off of that size and scale, no doubt, no doubt about it. They don't come around that often, but certainly the acceleration of the energy transition will mean that more companies who are involved in the commodity business globally or are looking to grow the renewables portfolio and have an existing 
you know, large position in upstream around the world are certainly, if they're focused again, much more on decarbonization and, and renewables going forward, they're much more likely to put some large sets of assets, upstream assets on the, on the marketplace. Mm-hmm. That certainly was an extremely you know, large one uh, with significant multi-billion dollars of assets in Australasia and, and in the Gulf of Mexico in that case uh, as well. And it fit well with what Woodside was looking to do with its global portfolio. Again, those type of opportunities of that size don't come along that often, but I think we'll certainly see a lot more in the kind of range of, let's say, you know, one billion to five billion, a number of those type of packages I think we'll see on the market as time goes by. Maybe some European utilities, certainly that that may have upstream assets, you know, around the world that are looking Mm -hmm. to sell those as they decarbonize. Uh, So there's going to be, you know, I think some large scale opportunities for companies that, as I think we said before, are firmly committed to upstream or looking to double down on it, which I think, you know, Woodside showed it was willing to do. So I certainly think there's going to be a large inventory of available upstream assets on the market over the next couple of years. But, you know, decidedly, I think there'll be mixed quality. Certainly companies aren't looking if they're going to continue at least to have an upstream position or looking to high grade, they're not going to get rid of their best stuff, right? So- You know, there was a saying in the industry, certainly if you talk about that period a a decade ago, where one person's trash is another person's treasure. Mm -hmm. So any type of assets that were put on the market were getting scooped up. A lot of that trash is staying on the sidelines now. It's not getting bought and it probably won't. So just because you want to divest upstream assets doesn't mean you're going to find a buyer unless they're very high quality assets. Sure. And how should should we view, I mean, the Natural gas. So, so that that um, again, back to the heyday. That those were you know fairly oil focused deals. Net natural gas has been, I would say, at a crossroads uh, in, in the energy transition conversation, where where one person describes it as as a clean transition, um, or at least one a, a commodity that puts us on the road to to um, a cleaner energy world. Um, others feel emotionally opposite. Um, the, the war in Ukraine has changed, at least in Europe, I, I think, some of the feelings around natural gas. Do you see natural gas being a, a big driver for buyers, uh, particularly undrilled natural gas? Um, there, there's a lot of natural gas discoveries out there on the LNG side that, that would cost, you know, that there's a high level of investment would to monetize that gas still required, even though the gas has been discovered. How, how do you see that in the... Uh, global emanation landscape going forward? That's a great question. And there's merit to both sides of the argument in terms of, you know, is gas a bridge fuel there? Um, you know, where, where is its place in terms of the kind of energy transition and stride into kind of anti-fossil fuel folks who obviously look at look at gas on the, the other side of the fence? Um, and it's very important of what role gas will play in upstream M&A. Certainly Russia's invasion of Ukraine has brought gas more to the forefront and obviously in, in Europe and that, again, security of supply. You mentioned LNG mm-hmm. as well, and that's very critical in the role of what gas will play in the upstream M&A market. The long-term demand for outlook for gas is very strong. Uh, certainly, the push for LNG post-Russia's invasion of Ukraine has given a boost to gas in terms of its potential in the upstream M&A market. And we think there's going to be an increase in global upstream M&A activity targeting gas that are related to LNG projects or potential longer-term LNG projects. And as you mentioned, 
certainly if you look at regions of the world like uh, Africa mm-hmm. and, and other regions where there's a lot of certainly uh, undrilled gra- gas potential, uh, that's going to give you know the ability for transactions to get done and for companies certainly to be targeting gas discoveries through the M&A market, either through an acquisition of a smaller company that doesn't have the capital to develop a larger project and is looking to sell, or for companies sure. farming in to discoveries as well as the gas side. So I think gas is going to play a really important role in the global upstream M&A going forward. All right. Uh, well, that's certainly something to, to watch. I, I think there's a, certainly a lot of discoveries out there, but, but it's not um, the, the, the path to market is, would obviously require increased investments. So, so I know um, we, we talked about, but before the call, I wanted to get you out of here within 30 minutes. So I'm going to put you on the spot with a final question here. Um, we, we've been talking about the, the heyday, you know, the, the shale sector heyday in post 2010. Prior to that, you know, that there was big deals, Chevron Texaco, Exxon Mobil, you know, that the big kind of super major uh, putting together. Given the thesis here that energy transition concerns are motivating a lot of activity, what's the likelihood that we see a green super major and a traditional super major coming together? I'm thinking the likes of Nextera and Enel and Petrola, some of these giant non-oil and gas companies, uh, would there ever be a marriage between, uh, say, an Exxon and a Nextera or a Enel and an Exxon or something like that? That's a really interesting question, because if you had said, are there going to be, I think, super major kind of consolidation like we saw Exxon and Mobil, Chevron, Texaco, et cetera, I'd be more inclined to say, Probably not in the short term because those type of companies, given the energy transition, are still in that phase where they're undergoing their process of that and investing more in the low carbon MA sectors, but will continue to have, I think, very large positions in upstream oil and gas around the world. And especially given, given the debate we talked about, the security supply and the importance of fossil fuels, potentially, obviously, again, going forward, given Russia's invasion of Ukraine. On the flip side of that, the Russia's invasion of Ukraine could accelerate the push to an energy transition away from fossil fuels. So when you look at those kind of super majors together and the potential for combination among themselves, I think that would be somewhat difficult in this political environment as well, mm-hmm. because regulators certainly already are scrutinizing upstream oil and gas corporate mergers there because of obviously the outcry right now for by consumers of high energy prices and they don't want dominance in, in markets by the regulators, by, you know, fewer companies. So I think it'd be very difficult for consolidation among the super majors. But if you're talking about a super major oil and gas company and, and some of those, you know, super green companies, large utilities and others that are renewables focused, there certainly opens up that possibility much more. If you are a super major who is very firmly committed to renewables and shifting your portfolio more toward renewables than upstream, it would probably take that type of acquisition of that size to make that shift. I'm not sure those companies are ready to make that radical of a, of a shift. But about the other way around? It certainly lends the possibility of it. The question is more of those target companies, are they, are they willing to be taken over by a company that still has a very large upstream portfolio? And given what they are focused on in terms of renewables and promising to their investors, 
I think that'd be a very difficult sell for them to their investors to say, hey, we're being taken over, you know, by this super major. Um, you know, it, it really, you know, certainly always depends on on the price, right? <laughs> is someone willing price. to sell at, at the right right price? But I think that's given the stage we're at right now in the energy transition. And, and although it's certainly accelerated still, you know, relatively early days, I think it'll take some time for that all to to play out in the marketplace. Okay. All right. Well, I think that's a, I, I, I put you on the spot without giving you advance notice on that question. I think that's a, a good and a, and a safe answer. Um, well, well, Chris, thanks so much for, uh, for, for joining me today. And uh, I look forward to what will be what the, the 19th uh, Gumar or Global Upstream M&A review next year around this time. Yes. And thanks for having me today, Hill. I appreciate it. Thanks a lot. To read additional insights from our team of experts, visit our blog at www.ihsmarket.com slash energy blog. You can also find our experts on social media by searching for IHS Market Energy on either Twitter or LinkedIn. Have a topic idea or want to send us feedback? Email our podcast team at energysense at ihsmarket.com. This podcast contains information and insights copyrighted by IHS Market. To learn more about IHS Market Energy solutions, visit ihsmarket.com energy. That's ihsmarkit.com forward slash energy.